Morning, New Hope family. Glad that you're here. If you're new, you're still part of the family. Glad that you've decided to spend your Sunday here, whether you're virtually on the broadcast or you're physically present. Did you happen to know that today is National Voter Registration Sunday? I, I bet a few of you knew that. I didn't actually know that until a couple weeks ago when someone told me that. And at the same time, I learned this last week, there are 90 million Christians that are capable of voting age-wise here in the United States. But I learned also that about 40 million Christians do not vote. Remarkable. So today, Voter Registration Sunday, there's tables out in the atrium, not a partisan thing, not Republican or Democrat, not Green Party, wherever you land on that. But this is rather a way to mobilize people to get them to vote. Now, you'll see a number that's on the screen, and it's a very simple method you can text to that number. I learned in between services, though, that some people texted to that number and didn't get a response because apparently they're flooded. The system is overloaded with people um, responding to it across the country. So um, if you get a chance and you maybe don't get a response back, you can text it again. What it will do is give you a way to interact, and it will tell you from that site about upcoming elections, not just national elections, but local elections, your school board, your county supervisors, even dog catchers if you wanna do that. So you'll have an idea when elections are coming up in your area and you can register this morning um, through that site and out in the atrium are some tables where you can ask questions and there'll be representatives there. So don't miss that opportunity. If you have values around marriage or around how to raise children or whatever's going on in your area, this is a way to really express your voice. I've been told that there are 15 million Christians that are not even registered yet that are of voting age. So consider that if that happens to be you. If you're feeling shame right now, that's okay. <laughs> Where we're going this morning in the book of Joshua, you won't feel any shame. My prayer has been this week that you will feel a sense of awe. A sense of awe in the way that you see God move, Old Testament, New Testament, and a powerful image of Jesus. I want to pray with you that way right now, that that would be what we would take away. Nothing else other than a sense of awe over this God that we sing about. Let's pray together. Father, we just declared in music that you are worthy of glory. You're worthy of all the praise and honor that we can bring. I pray right now, specifically as we open up your word and, and look at how you would speak to us that you would indeed do that through the power of the Holy Spirit who causes your word to come alive. And Father, if you have ways that you want us individually in our relationship with you to respond to the things that you prompt our hearts on, make it so in our lives this afternoon or this week. But right now, Father, we're praying that you would just leave us with a sense of impression of you are awesome and you are glorious. We ask for that in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. I'm going to take you to a place you probably wouldn't think we're going to go. To start with Joshua chapter 4 and chapter 3 this morning, I need to take you to Matthew chapter 3. Look with me on the screen at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And I say it with that kind of emphasis, church. Just pause there for a second. Because John knows who he's dealing with. 
Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's what he's declared to people. Jesus shows up on the banks of the Jordan River, and John makes a huge declaration. Jesus walks into the water to John, and John says, no way. I need to be baptized by you because John's doing a baptism of repentance. And the last person on earth that needs to repent of anything is Jesus. And so that's why John has the reaction that he does. Let's pick it up again. You come to me, but Jesus answered and said, said to him, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, stop right there for a minute. In the Greek language, it's a, a middle imperative. And an imperative in this sense, in the way it, it, it's relayed is, it's not just look, it's Pay attention. So when you see behold used this way in reference to Jesus, behold is like time out. There's something enormous going on here. So he says, behold, Matthew writes, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God. He, meaning John the Baptist, saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Jesus, capital H, you notice that, lighting on Jesus. And behold, there's the verse again, the word, a voice out of the heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come has left heaven and is standing in the middle of the Jordan River. Leave it hang there as we go to Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4, and let's bump out from the baptism way back past the baptism and go all the way back to 1400 B.C., to the time when the book of Joshua is being written. There's a really long period of time that has gone by. Forty years people have been wandering in the wilderness. Forty years. And now this next generation has a monumental task in front of them. They're supposed to go in and take the promised land. And they're a very young nation, literally young. Not just because they're only 40 years out of Egyptian captivity and so they're a very new nation, but because they're biologically young. The first generation has died out. Their parents and their grandparents are gone. Everybody who was 20 and under at the time of the rebellion, those are the people that get to go into the promised land. So this is a, a young generation. And also remember, those who were younger than 20 at the time of the rebellion, they get to take the promised land, which is a huge assignment. So this is truly a next generation thing. But during those 40 years of preparation, there's a lot of children that are born, many sons and daughters who have been raised in the wilderness wanderings. And they've seen the manna from heaven. They've seen God's provision. They've got to see things that previous generations have had no contact with, our generation included. The future generations didn't get to see the things that they got to witness. And Moses yet had to remind them because they grew up in it. He had to remind them, this is not normal. So at the end of 40 years, when Moses is ready to die, he has to say this to this generation. Look with me on the screen. Deuteronomy 29.5, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. 
Moses says, this is amazing, in case you guys don't know that. I know you're very, very young, but you may not be aware this doesn't happen for other people. Now, I don't know how many people here like to wear the clothing that they had 40 years ago. Not sure what you were wearing in the 1980s. That'd be fun. Let's do an 80s Sunday. Everybody show up in what they wore in the 80s, right? Fashions have changed, right? But Moses is saying, your clothing has not worn out. The leather on your shoes, your sandals, they've not worn out. Because of the miraculous intervention of God, your clothing looks as good today as it did when you started. But because of the next series of amazing things that God is about to do, the author of the book of Joshua slows down the pace just a bit because he's moving towards a really deliberate climax. Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel came, uh, set out from Shatim and came to the Jordan. And speaking of the Jordan River there. And they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant, that should get your attention. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So the Ark of the Covenant comes on the scene, the thing that's not been seen by people because it's always inside the tabernacle, always back in the Holy of Holies. Now, they're going to journey from Shittim to the Jordan, which is about a 10-mile journey. It's going to take most of an entire day to move a mass, vast number of people, two million-plus people, across this region right to the banks of the Jordan River. And they are spread out over a big area. So on the day before... Verse 5 says that they've been given very specific instructions that they need to spiritually prepare for what God's going to do among them. Because Joshua says, you're going to see the Ark of the Covenant. It's going to go before you. So you've got to keep a safe distance, about 3,000 feet, 10 football fields in our world, about a half mile. You're going to keep yourself separated from this thing. Don't go near it, but you'll be able to see it which tells us that the crossing of the Jordan River is much more than just a military maneuver. They're definitely going to go into Jericho. They're going to go into the Promised Land, but it's not just about military operations here. Let me remind you of something that you might recall from back when we were in the book of Exodus, chapter 25, when we talked about the Ark of the Covenant at length. The Ark is the physical representation of the presence of the invisible God. Now, on one level, on one level, the image of the ark being carried across the Jordan River is going into the very land that God committed to Abraham 400 years earlier. On one level, God's making a statement. I'm taking what is mine, but there is so much more going on here than that. The people are being warned. You've got to keep a safe distance from the ark because it is extremely holy. Now, briefly, just think with me back to Exodus 25 for a moment. Think back to God's instructions on the ark. If you're new to the Bible, we're not talking about Noah's ark. 
There's two arks mentioned in the Old Testament. Both of them carried cargo. Noah's ark is gigantic. This is the Ark of the Covenant, so think Indiana Jones, right? So this is a little smaller, it's much more decorative. That's the Ark that's being referred to here. The Ark of the Covenant is the single most important item in the entire tabernacle system. If it's not there, you might as well not have the rest. There wouldn't even be a need for a sacrificial system without that. Well, it's called the ark because it intends, it's designed to carry cargo, and it's astonishing in its appearance. It's gold. On the outside, it's overlaid wood with overlaid gold, and it's absolutely magnificent in its appearance. Now, different than what you would see from Hollywood, the, the rods that actually go through it to carry it, they don't go through the top of it as you see in the movie Indiana Jones. They actually go through the feet so that when the ark is picked up, it's actually elevated above the people, and the rods, when they carry the ark, is all above the shoulders of everybody that's in the area. So it is visible. It's highly visible to the people who are watching. So it's astonishing in its appearance. It's elevated above the people, and inside the ark is the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, the tablets written by God Himself. But the real significance of the ark is the lid. It's made of pure gold. It's not overlaid. It's solid gold. And this pure gold lid is remarkable because it's called the mercy seat. Now, to call it a mercy seat makes you think of a chair or a throne. Actually, the way the word is used, it's in reference to the location, the location of mercy. So that when the high priest came in and sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, on the lid of the ark, God received it as atonement for the sin, and He would distribute, in turn, mercy back out to the people. In other words, they received God's mercy because of the location. So at the lid is the seat of power, not a seat, but the place where mercy comes from. And the people were instructed to put two golden angels on it, cherubim, carved out of pure gold. And God was very specific in the instructions, saying, you need to show them with the wings spread out over the mercy seat so that people will understand that this is an image of something that God wanted them to capture. So think of it this way. If the roof of this building suddenly peeled open and the sky peeled open and you could look into heaven and see God on His throne, what you would see is cherubim surrounding Him and seraphim flying over him. Because Scripture says this in Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. So when you think of the Ark of the Covenant going into the Jordan River, think of this. The Ark of the Covenant is an earthly symbol of a heavenly reality. And God said this is like a 3D picture of what's going on in heaven. I want you to see it on earth so you understand it is my presence. So the ark, as I said a moment ago, is the physical representation of the presence of the invisible God. But because God is so revered, they have to cross a half mile downstream from this item. Verse 5, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. So the Ark is holy. 
the event itself is holy. And so God expects the people to be holy. And Joshua has to say to them, you've got to consecrate yourself, which involved washing all their clothing. Even if they did laundry day the day before, they've got to wash all their clothing. And they've got to wash themselves because it involved washing the outer person, washing all of their clothing, and they had to abstain from sexual relationships and certain foods they had to abstain from. It's all part of the consecration because God is elevated so high. Joshua is doing this to emphasize the sacredness of the ark and the awesomeness of God's glory. So you and I, as observers to this, we get to see two aspects of God's nature here. We get to see His comforting presence. In other words, God's saying, I'm right there with you. I'm among you. But we also get to see a reminder of God's fearsome glory. How powerful. And, and the two have to be held in balance. He's among us, but He's awesome. So Joshua uses this remarkable word, and we drill down a bit in verse 5. He says, the Lord will do wonders among you. I put in your notes this weekend the, the Hebrew word, palah, that's the representation of the nearest thing that we have to the New Testament version of miracles. So when you see this definition and you read it and you look very closely, it says something that's very, very difficult, hard. Why that particular word in relation to a miracle? Because it's relaying this sense that what is unfolding before the individual's eyes is so great and so hard. In other words, unexplainable. It makes what is happening so marvelous that the one who did this is exalted. Rather than the action itself, the one who brings the wonder. So if you think of it this way, the event or the wonder of what's about to happen points to the one who is the source of the wonder. It's supposed to bring glory to God. That's what these miracles do. They astonish, and the natural response should be Psalm 9-1. David wrote this, I will give thanks to the Lord. I will tell of all your wonders, all your palah, all the hard things that you've done. Now, clearly, the next generation that's coming up and ready to cross the land, they are ready to see God do amazing things that they've only heard about from their grandparents and their parents before they died. They've heard about these kind of things, and they're ready to see it. But they have to take that step, and they're not yet told how they're going to be able to cross the river. A couple million people who are going to walk 10 miles and they're going to get to this body of water, and they know they have to get across it, but they're not told what God is going to do. How are they going to be able to get across the river? So they've got to take that first step. And like, how hard is that first step when you have to trust God? My experience, that's the most difficult one. Because often God allows us to take that first step in faith, and then He reveals what He's up to. Been there many times. I bet you can identify with that. Like, I, got, I know I have to trust you, God. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. So there's a command. I want you to go stand in the river. But there's still no indication of how or what is going to happen. And I'm not sure Joshua even knew at this point. 
I'm not sure that he's clear on what's going to unfold. What he does know is that this time of year, the Jordan River is at flood stage. We're going to come back to that. Let's keep going. Verse 9, then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, by this you shall know, pay attention church, if you have your Bibles open, you might want to circle this, the living God. By this you shall know that the living God is among you and that He will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. There's that word, behold. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. I don't know if you have these frame of references in your mind, but in my mind, I like to call this a Hollywood moment in the Bible for this reason. Because if ever there was a moment to hear a crescendo of a symphony orchestra behind a scene that's unfolding in your eyes, it's right here. And you can pretty much just hear Joshua going, behold, Look with me at the verse and how he states it. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. And behold appears again and says, pay attention, this is not normal. There's something extraordinary going on here. I'd like to think that there were maybe trumpets blaring at this point, but it doesn't say that any of that's going on. I'm just kind of imagining in my head what Joshua does do, though, for us. He's affirming there is something fantastic here. He says, the living one is among you. In contrast to all the dead gods, everything that their grandparents and their parents experienced in Egypt, all the stone idols that were bowed down to, who had eyes but couldn't see according to scriptures, all the Amorites, all the Canaanites, all the Jebusites, all the termites. I'm just checking to see if you're paying attention. (laughs) Those nations are all bowing down to stone idols, dead gods. Joshua says, you got a living God. And that living God is among you. So you better be paying attention. So that he says that tells us that God, his actions here, are serving a much larger purpose than just Israel crossing the Jordan. Are they going to stay dry? Yep, that's important. Will their children not have to wade through deep water? Yeah, you're going to protect the lives of the kids. All important. But there's something much, much bigger going on here. There's a, a living God actually among them, and that's another thing entirely. Now, just hold that thought. The ark, he says, is going to be your guide because you've never been here before. And it's water's edge of the Jordan River. When the ark gets to the water's edge, that's going to be the signal for you that this is the beginning of the miracle, the wonder is about to happen in front of you. Now, I know that in our church, there's a lot of Bible nerds. And so what I'm going to do next is a Bible nerd thing for you, okay? If you're not a Bible nerd, just endure this for a moment. In the Hebrew language... There's something remarkable that happens here in in the Hebrew language in verse 11. I guarantee you, whatever translation of the Bible you have in your lap right now, whatever on your phone, whatever you have at home, NIV, RSV, ESV, New King James Version, NASB, it doesn't matter. They all have something in common 
in which they don't translate it the way the Hebrew language actually translated it. Let me put on the screen for you the way the Hebrew language actually reads. The Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of all the earth. Now, you might be looking at it thinking, okay, that's not so different than what my Bible says, but there is a word that's not there that's in your English Bible. It's the word of, and it was added by the translators because they didn't think the Western world could actually get this thought. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth, meaning they're making it sound like it's a piece of furniture, as though it's just something God has around and something that He possesses. But the Hebrew mindset is much more picturesque, shall we say, in which it's married together the Ark of the Lord, the King of all the earth, it's put together, saying this is the physical representation of the invisible God, the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of all the earth. So the Ark's physical representation is of the presence of the living, invisible God, and the way they're going to cross is still not known to them. It's still not revealed, but it's just building anticipation. So it says in verse 10, when you see these things, there's a very specific way that you're going to know that God is in your midst. Go with me to verse 12. Now then take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off. Now he's telling them what's going to happen. And the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. Now, there's no explanation there why the 12 men are selected. You're going to find out next week. We, I had to break this down into two parts. There's so much going on here. Finally, now the substance of the wonder is revealed to the people. And it's going to be on the scale of a Red Sea miracle. God's going to part the waters because He has to make a path because they're just humans. They can't walk on water. They don't have that capacity. God's got to clear a trail for them. Verse 14, so when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, pay attention, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest, springtime, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan, and those which were flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite, big detail, the people crossed opposite Jericho. Now normally, the Jordan River varies between 90 and 100 feet wide. This time of year right now, it's between 3 and 10 foot deep. But this is springtime. This is the time of the barley harvest when the water's at its highest and it would spread out as wide as 200 feet and between 20 and 30 foot deep in some places. And the normal way to cross the river at this time is to swim it because this is 1400 BC and nobody's built a bridge across it. The Romans haven't arrived for another thousand years and they'll build the first bridges, but this is long before that. But swimming would be incredibly dangerous, fast-moving currents in the spring, and you got a lot of children that can't swim. 
So God has to interrupt the flow of the water, and the flow of the water is interrupted, and the river begins to pile up, we're told, in a heap upstream. Adam is a city that's located 20 miles upstream. That location of that city is really remarkable because where they're at, they're adjacent to Jericho. 20 miles downstream, they're right across from the ancient city. And so the literal Hebrew wording, again, another one of this phrase is this, and it happened that the waters coming down from above stood. They rose up in one heap a very far distance away at Adam. So with the waters completely cut off at Adam, the water flowing downstream instantly empties down into the Dead Sea and the river bank begins to dry up. So the stoppage of this water is listed in two ways. We're told that it's cut off and it stands up in a heap. And a lot of individuals who respect the Bible are trying to explain this away, saying, how could that happen? There has to be a natural explanation for that because a lot of people that don't believe in miracles. Let me ask you, church, can the God who created water stop water? So he's not limited by that. Nonetheless, individuals have speculated, well, because where Adam is located, there's been a lot of landslides over the years. Maybe there's a landslide that blocked the water. Right at that moment in time when they're stepping in, well, just keep that thought because I know that's dismissing a miracle, but there's a desire to explain away these things. Let's go back to the bigger issue. Israel is standing in line at the bank of the river, and suddenly this super highway of dry land opens up in front of them. Verse 17, and the priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. So their church in the middle of the Jordan stands the Ark of the Covenant, the physical representation of the presence of the invisible God. And the Ark is the most holy thing they have among them. It's God's very presence. What's inside it? Because it's intended to carry things. I told you the Ten Commandments is in there. What's that? God's standards. Aaron's rod is in there. The very same staff that he threw down in front of Pharaoh all those years earlier. The same staff that Moses used to turn the river Nile red. That's in there. What, What is that? That's God's protection. And then this big old jar of manna is inside there. God's provision. So they not only see the presence of the living God among them, they're reminded in this moment they've got God's standards with them, they've got God's protection with them, and they've got God's provision with them, and there it stands, the image of the living God, the embodiment of the living God's promise to provide, to protect, and to rescue. And here's where it comes to an end. We'll pick it up here next week. Watch with me in verse 15 of chapter 4. Now the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest to carry the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest saying, come up from the Jordan. And it came about when the priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the middle of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up to the dry ground that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over all its banks 
as before. And as a result, Joshua says, as a result of everything that's happened to you, as a result of all these things, the one thing that you are going to know for sure, verse 10, you shall know that the living God is among you. The living God is actually in their presence. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus answering said to him, permitted at this time for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And gratefully, John, the disciple, the author of the book of John, not John the baptizer, but John the disciple, tells us precisely where this happened, John 1.28. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. And this Bethany has become known over the hundreds and hundreds of years as the Bethany beyond the Jordan, not to be confused with the Bethany that Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived in, which was only five miles outside of Jerusalem. There's three Bethanies, and this Bethany, it sits on the banks of the Jordan River. Jesus is found that day standing in the Jordan River, not by accident or coincidence because there's no coincidence with God. Right, church? So the spirit of the living God drove John to baptize people right in front of Bethany in this region in the Jordan River, and scholars today pinpoint the actual site to five miles north of the Dead Sea, directly across from an ancient city called Jericho. Gives you goosebumps, doesn't it? You begin to realize that the living God has been in this water before. The same location, 1,400 years earlier, a generation took their first step into the new promised land. And there stands Jesus in the waters of the Jordan. And the old is gone, and the new has come. And God is physically present on earth, the mercy seat of God, your mercy seat, the one who delivers mercy and grace to you. Because Scripture has to remind us, Colossians 1.15, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Or Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And there He stands, the living God, my ark, your ark, the one that provides for you and protects you and rescues you. If Jesus has rescued you and given you salvation, would you say amen this morning? Amen. So you know that living ark, the one who stood in the same place. In the time of Joshua, Moses has died. The old leader is gone. 
the new leader has come. The first generation has died and gone. The next generation has come. The old has gone. The new has come. In the first century, John the baptizer is the last living Old Testament saint. He's the remaining physical embodiment of the remnant of the law. And now the new has come. The age of amazing grace has arrived. And God came near. And he's no longer a half mile removed upstream. He's incarnate. He's in human flesh. He's in like us in every way. And the living God actually is among us. So God cries out from heaven in Matthew chapter 3. A voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he will not be parting the water. He will be walking on the water because our God is awesome. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in recognition that you still have the capacity to stun us, shock us, amaze us. And this is just from your written word. You promise us that eyes have not seen all the things that are in store for us. Ear has not heard. My mind has not even begun to imagine what's waiting for us. But I thank you for this moment in which you can still remind us that you are awesome, you are powerful, you are glorious, you are to be feared, and yet you love us unconditionally because of the love of Jesus Christ. We recognize this morning that we can't get to you any other way than going through the ark. Thank you that the new has come. Thank you for grace in Jesus Christ. Remind us today of our own salvation, and as we take on this week, help us to speak powerfully, boldly, compassionately, cautiously about who you are. We ask this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen.